0: The views expressed by your hosts austin and landon are not necessarily the views of lincoln financial advisors backbone planning partners is a marketing name for registered representatives of lincoln financial advisors now let's lean in as austin and landon connect with this week's tycoons
1: good afternoon tycoons and welcome to today's episode of tycoons of small biz i'm austin peterson your host here as always Coming to you today from an undisclosed location in my motorhome, somewhere in Utah, I can't tell you exactly where, probably because I'm on some sort of uh, top secret mission. But the reality is, we are excited to have this uh, podcast today. If this is the first time that you're listening to our podcast and you're wondering what it is that we do here at Tycoons of Small Biz, we are a radio program and a podcast that's put together by small business owners for small business owners. Landon and I and our other partners, Ryan and Gary, believe that the small business owner community is truly the backbone of the American economy. And so we have this uh, podcast we've been doing since May of 2020. And each week we invite a business owner to come in and talk about themselves and their business and what they're doing in their community and, and the things that they've learned along the way. And hopefully that's something that benefits the listeners as well and, and uh, kind of props them up and helps them feel good about uh, what it is that they're doing day in and day out to drive this economy here in the country. So today being the day after Memorial Day, we're excited to have a veteran on the show with us today. We have John Webster, who's definitely a tycoon of small biz, he's got a great story and uh, we're excited to hear that. So John, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, thanks Austin, glad to be here.
1: Yeah, so John, uh, we always start by uh, the, talking about the personal side of things. So. Uh, you know that we—I know our listeners don't know this yet—but you were going to be in the studio recording today, but your family is at home uh, with COVID. And so, tell us about your family. Tell us about where you grew up. How long have you been married? How many children do you have? What did you do for a career prior to this? Just, just kind of give us the personal side of uh, of John Webster.
2: Sure. Actually, I grew up in a little small farming town in southern Utah. So you may be right there. I don't know.
1: I'm in northern Utah, but that's All as right. far as I can go with the location, John.
2: <laughs> I had an older brother that influenced me and uh, challenged me to, to do something different. So I went off to the Air Force Academy, which is just outside of Colorado Springs. On my first assignment down in Tucson, Arizona, I met my wife, married her, and then we, we had a wonderful 21 years in the Air Force with children born along the way, including two in Massachusetts, two in England, and one in Virginia. It was just, uh, it was a great experience. Met a lot of dedicated folks, people who had put their country first, and, and got to see a lot of the world. So it was a great, it was a great career in the Air Force. And we finished up in Colorado Springs in 2014. It was time for me to retire and settle down with the family. So... My wife, who had who had gone with me out to Finland for three years and England and all over, she said, let's go back to Arizona, the land of the sun. And that's how we ended up here.
1: Yeah, well, I tell you, after spending time in, in London and Finland, I can certainly understand why she would want to be back where the sun shines on a regular basis. Sure. <laughs> and, and what's interesting, I think, is is that
2: transition because as a, as a military veteran, you get in the air force or the army, Navy, they give you an assignment and off you go. And usually it's three years, sometimes it's two, sometimes it's a deployment, it's shorter, but the structure is kind of set up, they put you in a role, help you learn how to do it. and And then you're off running. And then once you figure it out, you get assigned somewhere else. The hard part is when you decide, okay, I'm done with the military. Now I'm going to transition into civilian life. And you try to all those skills that you've, you've developed in the military and figure out where do they apply in civilian life. And, and I, and I remember distinctly sitting at LinkedIn on my computer in the living room. I thought, I'll, I'll figure this out. And because we wanted to move to Arizona, I was, I was trying to match up. Okay. Here's my skills. And, and, now I need to find how do they apply in this region, Arizona? And it was very, very discouraging. <laughs> and it's just the, the way it is. You know, I, I, I spent three years doing defense policy at the Pentagon. I'd worked in embassies. I'd done a lot of interesting, cool stuff, but, but not very applicable to Arizona. And in fact, I went out here and, and did a job hunting trip and met Met with different folks, people that uh, I thought could help. And one was, he was at the time the Arizona Secretary of State, and we sat down. And he asked me about my career and what I had been up to. And I said, "Yeah, I'm just looking to see where I can fit in here in Arizona." And he gets done. He goes, "What do you know about IT?" <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know anything about IT. Well, he goes, well, I, "I can get you a job in IT." So that that was that was pretty rough, actually, and I and I think that's I think that's more common than not for for military folks. That transition can be very tough, and and they're doing the military is trying to do a better job at, at helping you along, but some career fields just don't match up well. It's just the reality.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that that's true. I mean, I think it's easier. You know, my brother was was in the military. He was in the Marine Corps. And he had a medical discharge after a short period of time. So he didn't end up being a career military man like yourself. But uh, I think he probably would have, if he'd been given the opportunity and didn't have the issue that he had um, medically. But, you know, his his training in the military was, was refrigeration technician, right? So, and really, you know, it was beyond that maintenance, so forth and so on. And he ended up, know he to this day has a heating and air business that that he runs but it's really kind of a side hustle for him and then he works for the state of utah and he's head of maintenance over certain you know public buildings and and whatever and so he kind of travels around the state and just makes sure that things are running and, and being maintained the way that they should be and he really enjoys it but i can certainly understand from your standpoint you know your your training was completely different i mean you know as a, maybe if you wanted to be a career diplomat or you know go that direction that would have fit with the background that you had but you know even defense contracting there's not a ton of that in Arizona so tell us what happened next i mean you, you decided you know Arizona's really kind of the land of the small business i mean literally there's i think there's only two fortune 500 companies in phoenix the sixth largest con- uh, city in the country mm. and there's only two fortune 500 companies that have Major offices inside of Phoenix, so it really is small and medium sized businesses in Arizona. So, what happened next?
2: So, interestingly enough, I was talking to a colleague. This is when I was in Colorado Springs, and and, and we were just talking. I shared my uh, little bit of anxiety, and he said, "Well, why don't you be a like a, a project manager?" And I had never heard of that. I had no idea what that meant, and so he explained it to me a little bit: project manager, program manager. I thought, well, you know, I have, I've led people. I've, I've been in charge of money. Maybe, you know, maybe that will work. Of course, you know, the, when we're in charge of money, it's just making sure you spend it all. It's not, it's not <laughs> right. a it's, it's a little <laughs> bit different. Yeah. So, uh, so with that in mind, at least I had something to look for. And it just, you know, things worked out. And, and often that's how things happen. Things work out. And my brother was working at a, a small engineering firm in Mesa and they were a subcontractor to Boeing and they, and they did avionics, putting electronics on, on the Apache helicopter that's assembled there in Mesa. And they had just won a contract on the new air force tanker and they needed a program manager. And, and, and he just happened here overhear the conversation, And it's, a, you know, it was a small business of uh, less than hundred folks. And he said, "I think I know someone that could do that." And and he pulled me in, the, and I interviewed, and they they took a risk and hired me.
1: So, how, how long did you stay there?
2: I, I was there about five years, a little bit less. And what happened is, you know, I got into these meetings, and we, and uh, you know, it's a pretty small company, so I was in the in the management. And they'd start talking about a profit and loss, and our balance sheet, and financials, and and as as a program manager, I was supposed to report on how the program was doing from a financial perspective. Well, I was woefully unprepared. And and realized if I if I was gonna make a contribution here, I needed, I needed some additional help. And so I enrolled in an MBA program down at ASU. And, and again, this company was, they were, they were awesome. Um, they said, okay, you can take off Friday. And then, and this program is all day Friday, all day Saturday. It's, it's like, uh, it's called the executive MBA program kind of for old folks help, help coddle you through, you know, (laughs) and, uh, and I started taking accounting classes and financial classes and, and it it really was, it really was, uh, just exactly what I needed. And they do a good job there at ASU. I think trying to help folks, folks kind of in mid-career, even second career, figure things out. So just as part of this course, this MBA program, they offered a class on entrepreneurship. And, you know, I I think I think everyone agrees that's kind of a sexy word, being an entrepreneur. And and you like to think of yourself as being able to do it. And, And what surprised me was half of this class about entrepreneurship discussed buying businesses, how you would do an evaluation of a business, how you would purchase it, and then, and then turning it around or, or making it bigger, better, whatever. And, and I had never thought of that. You know. Again, that was something totally outside uh, the, anything I'd experienced. And as part of the class, they wanted to do a project, to do an evaluation. So I found out I had a neighbor and he owned a, a millwork company. And I, I didn't even know what millwork meant. So they do commercial countertops and and cabinets and he he just kind of shared, yeah, he and his brother, classic American story where they built it out of the back of their pickup truck and now they owned, uh, you know, uh, they had 10,000 feet of a a shop here in Gilbert, some great machinery, but they were kind of at the end and, and they were ready to move on. And I said, well, you know, can I do a little project and, and do evaluation for you? Just, just thinking I could help them out. And we're sure, here, here's our financials. And I went through it and the, and the professor down at ASU helped me out. And so that ended up being my final project. And I, and I gave this presentation on this company, Executive Millwork, and they had they had good financials. These two brothers had figured out how to be efficient had to reduce their costs. They had survived the great recession and they just kept it the same size that they were comfortable with for over 10 years. It hadn't grown, but they were happy with it. They liked their keeping that span of control. And I remember I gave this presentation and at the end, uh, one of my classmates said, hey, why don't you buy that company? (laughs) And I just looked at like, what? yeah why don't you buy it if they're doing so well and there's a lot of opportunity for growth, maybe you should talk to them about it and a year and a half later, the end of the story is uh, we did
1: So the rest is history, as they say, right yeah <clears throat> so how long ago was that when when you actually when did you close on the sale of executive millwork and cabinetry?
2: It was three and a half years ago, about three, yeah, just over three and a half years ago. and what was remarkable in Austin, you maybe you already knew this, but um with with the SBA, what I didn't realize is you, you could work the financing so that you only had to put down five percent of your own cash for the sale of the, of the business. And I I got in touch with uh, there's a program called Score. That's an acronym. I'm not sure what it stands for, but they they have advisors that kind of help you walk through the process. Like, you should go talk to this lawyer. You should work with this bank. And I had a great Score advisor, and he. And over the course of a year, he walked me through that. Still, the big issue is, what is how do you value a, country, a company, a small company? Yeah. And, and a lot of it is, you know, you can, you can have the numbers, but a lot of it's emotional. The two people that, that built it, the, the, the two brothers, they, they had a sense of what it was worth. And, and, and so, we, you know, it, it was a tough negotiations. We probably talked about it for almost a year. Before we kind of we agreed on a price and signed the the bottom line.
1: So tell us a little bit more about what that process was like because you're absolutely right. It, it it's well it's emotional on both sides, but we have to remember that this was their this was their baby, right? I mean yes. they they built it out of the back of their truck and you know grew it to where you know like you said ten thousand square foot facility. They grew it into a, a nice business. they have done a good job, right? They did just because they didn't want to grow it humongous doesn't mean that it wasn't a great company and something that they were proud of. So tell us a little bit more about what that conversation or, you know, I mean, obviously multiple conversations, but what those conversations were like. Right. Because, first of all, let me let me frame it this way. You can take it you know whatever direction you want, but small businesses notoriously have terrible books just terrible books right and so what was that process like how professional were their books right and then the emotional side of things as you went through there okay you dig in you do finally you know kind kind of come up with some financials and say this makes sense and maybe the multiples x and i'm comfortable with that you know from my purchase side but then who knows what they thought it should be worth or was worth so just kind of take us through that journey if you would Sure,
2: and, and everything you said is, is spot on because those uh, they had had the same accountant for 15 years, right? And so they were very comfortable with how he was doing things, but they, um, they weren't too concerned other than, because they're not prepping, they weren't really prepping the company for, for sale, they weren't too concerned with the numbers yep. and, and how it looked and so forth. So uh and, and what does that mean? That that means they usually make decisions based on how it would best impact them tax-wise, how to reduce their which which makes sense. So I, I I hired an accountant and to do due diligence, as you would, as you would imagine, go through the books. And they were a little messy. They were a little messy. But in the end, you know, you're you're worried that they're hiding something, right? There, there's there's some. Bad debt that you're not aware of, or or they've overstated some earnings, and and the, none of that came out, which is what I needed to know. Give them so you have confidence that you can then go into negotiating, and then we negotiated on on net revenue, really. And, and your the, the question is the multiplier, and you know you can go and I you know here I am. I'm just coming from ASU, right? So I'm feeling like I've got my Harvard Business Review. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to show them. Look, this is this is the standard and these guys have been doing this for 30 years. They're like, yeah, but we want this and, and you can come back. No, but this is the standard. No, nope, We, we want this. And, and sometimes you just have to let that sit and then come back and, and talk a little bit more. And, and they, there was some risks. There was no doubt about it. This company had never done any advertising. It was all on their reputation. And the reputation had been built by the two brothers. So the question was, if you remove the two brothers, do you lose the reputation? They have nothing proprietary. They're not doing anything, you know, unusual. And, those, and there's other millwork companies. So those relationships, you could get replaced, right? And so we, there was risk. And, and, and you try to present that risk so they appreciate, hey, I, you know, I understand you're, you're doing a great job, but, but here's the risks. And so we went back and forth, and I think it was education on both sides. And in the end, you know, I gave them a number, and we, and they, they thought it was too low. So we, we probably sat four months and didn't talk to each other. And 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 then they came back, and we finally, we finally found a compromise. And I think that was that was key for me is not to rush it and use time for your advantage. And in the end, what happened was they they agreed pretty good terms to, to help to help steer it through, and then and then to finance. Some of it themselves, right? So, so owner yeah, I get owner yeah. financing is, is how I would call it. Yeah. So, so that we're they were, were invested in the success of the company.
1: Yeah. So what, what was that time period? Because like you said, their reputation, their personal name is what kind of carried this because it's a local business, right? So sure. how long did they stay on and what, what did that look like?
2: So they stayed on full time for 90 days and then they had kind of an advisor role after that through the first year and then the the second year it was it was as needed and i didn't pay them any salary they just came in to work just like it was the same and and i did a, a stock sale so that from the outside it didn't look like anything had changed we kept the same ein the same name everything was the same and in, in this business, what's interesting is because so much of it as a subcontractor it is via online email, you know, you get the bids, you send in the bids. A lot of folks, a lot of their customers didn't know the management had changed and that's how we wanted it. And as long as we kept delivering uh, our product on time at the same quality with the price that we quoted, we were good. And so it worked out pretty well where at the 90 day point, I had found someone who really had an expertise in woodworking and he, he ran operations. And then I became the financial guy and learned how to do estimates. And So it was a little risky because I needed that key individual. And luckily of all places, I found him on Craigslist. I put, a, <laughs> I put an advertisement on Craigslist and he was, here was a guy that he was in the Valley. He was in between, he had just moved to another company and he was, he was unhappy and we met and hit it off. He's great. You know, he's got 30 years of experience. He knows exactly what he's doing. And I and I tell him I got an, A, an eighth grade shock class. And that's my experience.
1: <laughs> and he's still with the company today. So. And he's still
2: with it, yeah. And that allowed, at that 90-day point, those two left. Now, did we have some growing pains? So, oh, my gosh, we did. No doubt about it.
1: Yeah, so... One last question on the acquisition and then we'll kind of talk about what you've done with it since you took over. You know, you mentioned this already that the contractors, because of the way that you structured the sale, they didn't necessarily know that there had been an ownership or a management change, which is great. But what kind of a concentration was there with one contractor or two contractors or three contractors? What percentage of your business was made up of you know, a small handful of contractors that you guys do subcontracted work for?
2: Well, that's, that's a great question. So we, we probably had, they, well, they had, and I inherited uh, 10 to 12 different contractors and, and none of them had more than 20%. The, the, the largest was 20%. And then the others, you know, down from there. So it wasn't that I think reduced the risk uh, that, because of the diversity of of customers, because if one of them bailed, you'd hate to go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? Uh, and and part of our, our process was just to make sure we delivered, especially right after they left, we wanted to make sure that they they felt like secure they were going to get the same quality product from executive millwork as they had before.
0: Yeah.
2: And that and that's really was our focus for the first year. To get our feet under us and make sure those customers were uh, that we inherited were happy and and comfortable with us.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean you you got to protect what you have first, right? I mean, obviously they were happy with the size of the business and what it was doing, and it provided a great life for them, and that was as far as they took it. But it sounds like for you, it was an opportunity to kind of grow this. You mentioned there was no advertising, there was you know none of that that they did before, so. You know, you take that first year and you protect the business. And then based on the timeline you've given me, you had about six months before COVID hit. So (laughs) what did you do during those six months right before COVID? And then kind of take us through what COVID has meant to the business until today.
2: Sure. Well, kind of a kind of odd thing that happened to us, Austin, was with the new management, people, uh, you know, often the customers don't come into our our uh, shop. We do most of our interaction with them, either email or the phone or so forth. But so once in a while, we get folks in and they'd want a business card. And so we'd, we, just, we thought, well, yeah, we should get a business card made up. And, and I remember looking at other other companies' business cards. And what, a key point of information on there is your website address. Well, we didn't have a website. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm talking no advertising, nothing, no yeah. web presence, at all. And I don't think that's that uncommon for a lot of these small subcontractors. But my thought was if if we are going to grow, uh, we that's a good place to start. And and even before that, the next step was, okay, so if we get a if we get a web address, uh, we probably should get a, a new logo. And and then we got our logo, then we got our, our our web address, and then we got our business cards. And in that process is when COVID hit, what well, we were trying to you know, develop develop a little bit of a brand, right? And and what was interesting with the logo was this discussion about, you know, I, I, I had no idea what that even meant. But I engaged a, a firm here in Phoenix, and they want to know, they wanted the logo to represent our company. What is it about your company that would be portrayed by this logo? So that that forced us to kind of say to ourselves, what is it about? What what do we want to be? And so it was a great process at that time. So we got our business cards, we're getting our website set up. We get, we get a logo, we put it up on the door. So we're feeling we're feeling like we're we're you know ma- making a name for ourselves. COVID hits, and there was a lot of uncertainty what that meant for us. We had a we had a project that we had gotten, and this was down uh, a health center down for this. Uh, and have a supai. Have you been down there, Austin? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the Supai nation, uh, they were build, building a, a health center, and it was one of the bigger projects we had. As soon as COVID hits, shut down, right? No one's going down there, no one's going in, no one's going out. And I thought, oh, here we go, right? But what happened in general, commercial contract, commercial construction, was deemed an essential business. And a lot of projects uh, just just kept on going. And, and in fact, some companies thought, hey, now that the workers have gone home, this would be a good time to do that remodel we've been talking about. And other things happened. Uh, uh, the, the traffic around the valley calmed down, you know, went down. And so we found we, we could we could zoom out to different construction sites a lot easier. So we actually during COVID uh, for commercial construction, and we don't do any residential. We saw growth, which which was very surprising, but uh, allowed us for the second year our vision of the company uh, to expand. And and what we did is we started picking new customers, ones that uh, didn't know executive the old executive no work, and developing relationships with them, and and keeping. Keeping the good customers that we had previously, and then we got a, we got rid of the customers we, that were a little bit of a pain, <laughs> if that makes sense, yeah. a little troublesome. Yep. Because you can, as a as a mill workshop, you come in at the end of a construction project, and if it's poorly managed and the schedule is is you know blown up because you know various factors, or the superintendent on the job site doesn't have your back or isn't advocating for you. You, you can see all your profit dissipate in, that, in the last two weeks of a project during the installation, all because your general contractor uh, isn't doing their job well, at least from our perspective.
1: Yeah. No, I think I mean. I grew up in a construction family. My dad was a stucco contractor. My uncle was a stucco contractor. I've developed real estate and land, you know, kind of throughout the country and even actually internationally. Um, so, I, you know, I, <laughs> I believe that a general contractor's ability to schedule and manage a job is the most important job of a general contractor. So, oh, and, and, yeah, and I mean, obviously, part of that is hiring good subcontractors that live up to the timelines as well. Right. Right. They, they keep the job site clean. They do, you know, everybody kind of has to do their job the best way possible so that everybody else can be successful. It really is like forming a team, but it's a team of independent business owners that completely have nothing to do with anybody else there. So it, it, it is complicated for sure. So Let's take a quick break. Let's let's hear a quick uh, call to action for our listeners. and Then we'll come back and kind of talk about, you know, that upswing that you saw with COVID, but kind of what you're seeing now and, and where we go from here with Executive Millworks. Sound good? Sounds good. Hey there, tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years, and you'd like to know what your business is worth, please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you. And thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now back to today's program. All right, Tycoons. Welcome back to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. We're here with John Webster of Executive Millwork and Cabinetry in Gilbert, Arizona. So John, just before the break, we were talking about, you know, kind of this upswing that you that you dealt with or were blessed with, I guess, is the way that I would put it, uh, during COVID. What does it look like now? Are you still just as busy now? Are you scheduled out, you know, through the end of this year? What What does it look like and kind of what do you see coming from from here on out?
2: We changed our approach, and that affected where we are right now. And, and when we bought the company, our the average job size was around 15,000. These were small jobs, in and out. And, and, and for commercial construction, this is usually a, a break room or sometimes a reception desk, but, but small jobs. And, yeah. it, and it was quick. Build, install, build, install. But what we found out, and, and this is, you know, this isn't rocket science, a lot of that work with the contract management and, and the project management, it's it's nearly the same, even when it's a much larger project. Yeah, true. And if we could get these bigger projects and do them well, right, that's the key, maybe that would be a good way to grow. So we started going out after bigger jobs. And that's and that's what's been going on gradually since then. So where we are today is we're 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 bidding much bigger jobs one instead of doing uh for instance a a break room uh sink and countertops we're doing a a hospital the first the first two floors so these are several magnitude bigger jobs and and we had to we had to warm up to it we didn't just jump into it we just gradually went after bigger bigger jobs so that we could gain the experience of how to, to manage them. because you, you screw up one that reputation you work so hard to get uh, you, you shoot yourself in the foot. Yep. so that's that's one place where we are today is where we are we've increased our average job size probably gosh six fold from where it was uh, originally. The other, the other thing we tried to do, Is and this is this is normal for small businesses. I think these uh, the the brothers, as we call them, the the two gentlemen we bought the company from. They knew they were doing well when they had more money in the bank at the end of the year than when they started, and that was it. So so we we said we probably should figure out which projects are actually making profit, and and project costs and doing and and figuring that out. Is a little bit difficult. So we, we went to a trade show up in Las Vegas. We got kind of an enterprise wide software that's made for a company like ours, started, started integrating it into our business operations so that when it was all said and done with the project, we could go back and say, Oh, that, you know, that one, we really did well. This one, we didn't do so well. And if, and then ask the question, why not? Uh, But you can't ask those questions unless you know, we get, you have the data so so that was that's been and that's an ongoing process I'd like to say we're there yet but we've only we're probably uh two-thirds of the way implementing that enterprise software package that we got and then and then we we started saying to ourselves okay uh, how do you grow your your workforce and that that Austin might be the, the trickiest issue of all and and that's that one I think and I'm guessing is impacting all, all trades, it's hard to find that new generation that says to themselves, I wanna be a, a mill worker and, and then figure out how to find them and, and, and train them, make them an apprentice. You know, we, we just don't do a great job at that. And we're still, we're still working at that. So the first steps we took is we said, okay, let's make sure we are the folks working for us have no reason to leave we're going we're gonna to offer them time off and, and we're going we're gonna to give them full health and dental insurance and we're going to set up some type of retirement plan for them. We're going to treat them like they're valued employees, like they are. And it feels like that's not always the case in construction, kind of the word on the street. Our guys were like impressed that we were trying to go the extra mile. But the reality is it, it's good for them, but it's good for us. We don't want to lose that expertise because it's very difficult to replace it. And then our next step was, okay, so we've we've got this core group of employees. How do we make it make it bigger? And we tapped into folks' network and, and pulled people in. So so now we're probably we're over we're over twice as big employee wise as when we bought it. And then the, and then the key is obviously to make sure your revenues are also twice as much. <laughs> And that and this year it looks like we'll we'll meet that goal.
1: Yeah, that that's incredible. I mean that's that's great to hear. And I, I think you know, a couple of things that stick out to me in what you just said. One, it costs a lot of money to replace and train employees, right? So it's cheaper to find a way to keep them if if at all possible. And then if you put the things in place that you talked about, the health insurance and you know whatever else, 401k plan, whatever whatever you put in place that's more than what they're typically gonna get at other places, right? Similar type businesses. Then they talk to their friends that are working for other companies that don't have those benefits. And you may have an opportunity to pick up, you know, new employees that way, because you're right, today it's hard, first of all. Second, as a country, we do a pretty, a pretty poor job of preparing people to work in the trades or to let them know that that's a possibility today, right? You know, when, when you and I were growing up, you I think you're a little bit older than I am, but when you when you and I were growing up, you know, the trades were a feasible option for a lot of people, the military was a feasible option for a lot of people, college was a less feasible option for most people. Now it's, it's completely the reverse. Everybody's get is pushed into college. And that's just not necessarily the right place for everybody to be. Right? I mean, I've, I've learned it myself with my own child that went away to school for one year and came back and is just not convinced that this is the direction that she wants to go and is the right fit for for what she wants to do. Right? There are certificate programs out there. There are a lot of other different things that you can do to to learn skills and abilities to, to still have a great career. College isn't the only direction to go. And so I would encourage you next week to listen to our episode, because we're going to have a, we're going to have a father and son duo on the son wrote a book a few years ago. He, he, they were, they were actually the very first guests that we had on our podcast a little over two years ago. They're making a return appearance this, this coming week, but the son wrote a book called blue is the new white right and he's he's out there he's pushing, he's he's very active on social media he you'd probably be a great guest on his podcast as well but he's pushing this message out there and saying look that's not the only direction to go you can make a very good living in the trades you can do things that you enjoy doing because not everybody wants to sit behind a desk and there's too many people graduating with mountains of debt today in, a, in a, an area of study that they will never be able to work in right and so it, it's it's kind of this epidemic if you will that uh, that is going on in our country and, and does need to be fixed especially for guys like you that are that are running businesses in the trades well
2: you, you're spot on exactly what you said and, uh, and and something that just came to mind was I got a shot foreman he went to school to get a marketing degree. And he said to me uh he went to he, he went to college to get a marketing degree yeah he said all it all it did was convince him the last thing he wanted to do was marketing,
1: <laughs> yep,
2: but to pay for school while he was going to school, he'd gotten a job at a local mill shop and found out, boy, I love that that's exactly I want to work with my hands i want to I want to build things and so it's almost haphazardly he found out that that was that was what he wants to do, and now he works for us. He's he he loves what he does. We compensate him well, and it's figuring out how to educate. I, just like you said, high school kids, there's there's different options opportunities out there.
1: Yep.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. College just definitely isn't for everybody, and and like you said he got that marketing degree, but learned that that's not what he wanted to do. And I, my older son right now is about to go into his senior year at ASU studying sports journalism, one of the best journalism schools in the country. And he's very, he's a very good writer. He's put some great articles out that have been published and whatnot, but he doesn't want to do it for the rest of his life. It's not what he wants to do for his career. And I'm thinking, all right, so now we're a year away. And so luckily, we had this conversation about a year ago. And so he was able to, to realize that, gosh, I can kind of finish this, but then still get a certificate alongside of that in sales and marketing, because he does enjoy the sports side. He doesn't necessarily want to be on the journalism side. So he sees himself more in the marketing department for a team or a company that does sports event marketing or you know, something like that. And so there's still plenty that he can do but that's the thing is we make this commitment economic and time-wise to this degree that may not ultimately lead us where we want to be. Sure. No, you're right. Yeah. And and, I mean, gosh, I've been running a financial planning company, you know, doing estate planning and succession planning for business owners for almost 20 years now with a bachelor's degree in French for crying out loud. So (laughs) it's, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean I have an MBA just like you do. I went through the same executive MBA program and I, you know, I learned an awful lot along the way, but I think the system needs to be better better than it is today.
2: Sure. And and that goes with with veterans also, I think. Uh and one thing we've talked about internally is is how to tap into that. So, um last week actually we just met with the Gilbert Chamber of Commerce. To look at some different avenues, they they're trying to establish this veteran advocacy group, or I think it's already established at the at the Gilbert town town level, and and tie it into the, the council, the Chamber of Commerce, so that employers, small business businesses, can figure out how to tap into that those those skills, because sometimes sometimes the skills are you just want someone that can show up to work, every day, work hard and. And and be focused, right? Yeah.
1: And take pride right. in their work, right? What was that? And take pride in their work. And take pride in their
2: work, exactly. Yeah. So we're trying to figure that out and also tap in tap into the veterans and then and then the local high school, see if we can uh start up an internship program with the shop class so they can come down and, and see a little bit of okay, how do you put these skills to, to work? And and what does what is a career in in shop it or or woodworking look like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean I think obviously the high school should should show some interest in that. The shop teacher for sure would. Um and then I think of Evit, right? So if you're not doing something there, you probably, you know, should should look into that as well. Right. So all right. So I want to hit some more on the on the military veteran side and and you know luckily and, and gladly, we weren't celebrating you yesterday, right? That's Veterans Day yesterday. Those are, those are those who gave their lives, you know, for our country and the freedoms that we enjoy. But from your standpoint, you talked about the employee side and, and, and the skills that they bring. And you can you know, obviously talk a little bit more about that. But what has being a military veteran for you done to help you in running a business?
2: That's a great question. One thing that that the military works hard on is leadership skills. And so at different parts of your career, different points in your career, you have military training courses that talk about leadership. And and these are are courses good for any, they would look good in the military, they'd look good for any company. How do you avoid micromanaging? How do you empower people? How do you inspire folks? Uh, What does it mean to help them be their best self? And those skills, then you'll have a course and then often you'll get an assignment where, where you get to utilize them. So I remember one of my first assignments, I was a young first lieutenant and I was a flight commander and I had, I was responsible for 60 people and I was the flight commander and then I had a flight sergeant who, who really had the expertise He or she had been in 15, 20 years and we were responsible for uh, making sure this, this flight was run well, 65 people. And I was the only officer and that was a lot of responsibility. But what it taught me was don't try to, you can't micromanage a group of 65 people and you need to recognize the limits of your expertise and figure out those people that you should trust. And empower them to use their expertise to make sure the organization runs well, and and that was those are great great skills to learn right off the bat. That I I feel like twenty years later or, or you know fifteen years later when I I'm now in charge of my own business, I'm putting those into into place, and maybe that's what gave me confidence as uh, a guy who has no no expertise in woodworking. To buy a woodworking shop, but if, if you find the the right people to do, and empower them, and make sure they they feel like uh, they have the authority and the conf your confidence to get the job done and make decisions, then you're okay. and And you need to provide kind of top level guidance, a vision for what we're trying to do, and get out of the way, right? And so that those skills I learned as a first lieutenant many many years ago are coming to play now as a, as a business owner. And I think that's true. Now, in, in my case, I was officer, but the US military has a great non-commissioned officer corps. So these are enlisted folks who also are trained as leaders. They learn those same skills. And so there's there's a lot of, I would consider, tra- easily transferable leadership skills that, the, that a military veteran offers that may not look obvious if you're looking at a resume, when he when he's talking about, you know, I, I detonated explosives for, you know, three years or, or, or you know, whatever. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And I, I think, honestly, you know, veteran or not, I mean, I, I think that there's, there are skills taught in the military that may not be taught anywhere else, period, right. and And so I think that there's some specific skills and talents and leadership capabilities that veterans have that the rest of the population just you know doesn't have can they learn it somewhere else potentially but it's you know it's it's innate it's built into the to the training in the military but the thing that i really picked up on that you said there and i think is important for anybody who's listening is to realize that you don't have to have specific experience in the business that you are wanting to buy or build or operate to be able to do it, right? Because running the business isn't about the actual trade or the service that the, that the business provides. Now, there are certain things, right? What I do for a living, you have to have specific licensing and training, right? So you can't just go out and buy a business that does what I do. But there are a lot of businesses, I've owned several businesses over the years that I had no background in at all. That I've always owned, you know, kind of a side business to my financial planning company, and I had no background at all because the skills really are about empowering others and allowing them to run the business the way that you want it to be run, and then helping take that business to the next level. And you don't have to know how to do millwork to to in order order to do that. No,
2: that's exactly right. And and that was you know going back to that was the the cool thing about that entrepreneurship class that. Down at ASU that opened my eyes to that that possibility, and then and then it gave you kind of this the skill set. Okay, how do you how do you make that happen financially, and, and using the institutions around? It. What I you know I was impressed, and, and it was a revelation to me is that there are programs, whether it's through the Small Business Administration, you know the SCORE mentors, others that are there to support American entrepreneurs americans who want to buy businesses you know that that's that's something uh the united states government sees as as a worthwhile investment let's help people buy businesses improve them change them whatever i honestly had no idea
1: yeah yeah no i mean there's a there's a ton of different services that are out there and programs that are set up specifically to help people build and buy businesses and and it, it is because you know the small business community truly is the backbone of the American economy 99% of the businesses in our country are small businesses right that is the economic engine in our country everybody talks about the amazons and the facebooks and the googles and you know that's what you see see on tv you don't see executive millwork talked about on cnbc or fox news or you know whatever you're you're looking at for for your business uh, news but the reality is, the hard work and the tax base in our country comes through small businesses, not large corporations. And so, of course, from a government standpoint, it's in their best interest to help entrepreneurs, people who are willing to take that risk to build those businesses. Oh, exactly. Yeah. All right. So we've only got a few minutes left, and I and so I want to I want to kind of wrap up with you telling us about. What you see as the future for executive millwork? What what defines success for you? If you fast forward, pick a number. Five years, 10 years down the road. What defines success for executive millwork and specifically for John Webster five to 10 years from now?
2: Wow, 10 years is a long time. So maybe we'll just go five. <laughs> five years from now, I want I want to be, I want to be a business where where good processes are the norm and that we're not dependent on personalities. And that's one thing I learned from being in with that engineering firm that did the avionics. It was all, they, they made, and it's, it's the nature of the business, right? Because you have to get FAA certified, but they had very clear and precise guidelines on how, what processes should be used. And, and so right now as a, as a small business, we're still doing things based on the expertise of, of the guy that's our shop foreman or our operations manager or so forth. But they're not always gonna be there. And, and, that, and that is the key, I think, especially as we look five, 10 years down the road, we wanna make it set up that whoever, as long as they've got a skill set, they can come in and fit get in that position. And, and the operation is just as smooth as, as ever. And I think that's you got to have clear clear processes defined and followed. And we're we're not there yet, but I think I think we can get there. So that's one thing we want to do. And the second is we we want to carve out a niche for ourselves. That um, because because we're, our product is not proprietary, we want our skill set to have its reputation. That when there's a a difficult job out there, and we've seen this a few times, a designer or an architect says to themselves, "Hey, what if if you made this reception desk this way, or what if you know, what if you use this type of material?" That we we've got the reputation, executive millwork can handle that job, and that and that invokes a lot of risk, and we've already we've already been through that. We had a we had a case where uh, where I was the estimator, and it was a it was a project we hadn't built before. And so you're trying, you know, you're kind of putting your thumb out there. Well, how much, how much will it take for us to do that? Well, no one's ever built it before. So, so what's the measure that you use for your estimate? Well, you're, you're guessing, right? And hopefully it's an educated guess. What I hope that happens, what I want it to happen is, is we get better at that. It reduces the risk on us and, and gives us more confidence so that those difficult jobs out there will, will tackle. And, And the reason being Cause that makes, that makes it, it makes the work more fun, right? People, people like problem solving. They like challenges. They like trying to figure things out and it gives us a, a great reputation of, Hey, there's a, there's a company that can, that we can trust. We'll figure it out. So that's, those are kind of our, our two over our two goals.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that sounds great. I mean, cause it obviously becomes boring to just do, you know, 35 four by six quartz countertops every every other day, you know, I mean, that's just that that becomes boring. So I, I, I like that. I like the fact that you guys want to be seen as a company that does the harder or the more difficult or the more unique type projects. And obviously you become unique with the architects that want to do that, that want to have the creative designs that are out there. And if you can, excuse me, if you can network with them, you can coordinate with them to obviously pick up the jobs and then they know, gosh, you know what, executive millwork can, can do that. Exactly. So before I forget, because I don't want to forget to tell you this afterwards, but one of the thoughts that came to mind way early on in the episode, you were talking about putting together the website, and you, were, you know, the business cards and all these kinds of things that you just didn't have in place at the time. I'm thinking that now that you're trying to take that next leap forward, you've gone to the bigger jobs, you've, you know, whatever, you wanna take that next, next leap forward to do something that's unique from a design standpoint, I would figure out a way to have very unique business cards, whether they're made out of quartz or Corian or, you know, something like that, and have a unique design that you're able to use those to go out and market to these types of architectural firms that are gonna want to do those types of creative uh, jobs, so. That's hopefully a good idea. idea. Yeah, hopefully you find that as a as a useful idea. But that came to mind for me. I thought, you know, everybody's trying to do something unique today from a business card standpoint or you know, social media or some some way of standing out. I thought with what you guys do, they're not going to throw it away. It's going to sit on their desk because it's, you know, it's either bigger or it's got a unique design or you know, it's not made out of paper. So that that gives you an opportunity to stay there top of mind for them. Sure. No, I like it. Yeah. All right, well, John, I've really appreciated the conversation. I'm going to turn it over to you and let you kind of throw out the, the website that you guys now have obviously up, any social media channels, anything that you'd like your list, our listeners to hear and, and how to get in contact with you guys.
2: Well, awesome. Thanks, Austin. We're, we're at executivemillwork.net, and it's not .com because that's a huge millwork shop that's up in Canada. <laughs> that took they, they had their website many years ago. So we're executive, executive millwork. You know, one thing I would offer, if anyone has an interest in, in seeing the, the actual, how, how the product is made, uh, we're, we're open for if someone wants to just call, reach out to me, give them a tour, especially if they've got a, a son or uh, it's, a, it's a youth group or whatever, we'd love to give more exposure to the, to the trade and specifically this trade. I think our guys enjoy their job. They, they have good hours. We don't, we don't work them overtime. They've got good benefits. It's a good group. We've got a good vibe. And I I just want to make sure if there's an opportunity, if someone thinks I might have a son or, or I know a group that would like to, to look at least be exposed to it, right? Just we're happy to set up a tour. Let them look at our machinery. We've got, We've got a great CNC that's uh, Italian made and a nice edge banner that's from Germany. You know, we've it's a small shot, but, it, but the good thing is someone could come and see the whole process and and I throw that out there. If anyone's interested, uh, send me a note, we'll, we'll set up a tour
0: for them.
1: Yeah. Very cool. Well, like I said, appreciate the conversation, appreciate you doing this, even though you're not feeling a hundred percent today, but uh, I think you've shared some great nuggets today that our listeners will appreciate and. Hopefully this is beneficial for you as well.
2: No, it has been Austin, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: You bet, thank you.
0: You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals, specializing in financial estate and succession planning for small business owners.